Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. Last week, we explored the savagery of white supremacy and the enduring impact of oppression on indigenous people and on the planet. If you haven't heard that episode, I encourage you to stop now, go back and listen, because the contents of this week's episode are inextricably linked with last week's, just as the present is inextricably linked to the past. All of this seems so familiar because we've all suffered these death marches, you know, the trail of tears and trail of death across this country. So all of this seems so familiar and so much part of all of our histories. That was Charlene Teeters. Charlene is a Spokane tribal member, an artist, an educator, a lecturer, an activist, and the former dean of the Institute of American Indian Arts. Whether you're indigenous or not, when you understand, when we understand what Native people have had to go through in order to not only survive, but to thrive, their resilience becomes all the more admirable, their enduring presence all the more powerful. Today, those whose kinship ties go back to sustainable land practices and sovereign tribal governments are doctors, lawyers, nurses, teachers, academics, journalists, artists, and so much more. And when life circumstances become overwhelming, even seemingly unbearable, many of them, like Jacqueline Russell, draw upon indigenous ancestral resilience. When it comes to how am I coping in this moment, it's to practice what I've known. And that actually isn't that new, a tradition that my ancestors have since time immemorial have continued. There are like points in time for like my people, my direct relatives were displaced and removed from our land. We didn't have access to our traditional medicines. We didn't have access to places. We were 300 miles from home in the concentration camp during the Navajo Long Walk. And there was so much that they didn't have access to. And yet our culture still continues. They were able to return home and they were able to continue. Like I had one of my great, great, great grandmothers who escaped from that place to make my life possible. And so I ground in that so much of, I think, my coping and trying to thrive or like working to thrive is to understand that this particular moment of struggle and challenge is not unique. Even that is interconnected to other moments in time that my ancestors have fought through. Jacqueline is a Diné woman who grew up on the Navajo reservation in the northeastern part of Arizona. She is also the president of Grown Up Navajo, the co-founder of Native Women Lead, a writer, a curator, a coach, and a cultural equity and justice consultant. If you're not familiar with the long walk of the Navajo, she was referring to the 1864 deportation and attempted genocide of the Navajo people by the United States federal government. 
During this forced removal, the American government marched approximately 10,000 Diné people, hundreds of miles at gunpoint, from what is now known as Arizona to what is now known as New Mexico. It was traumatizing, barbaric, and deadly. Hundreds of Diné people died, while federal forces subjected 10,000 people to savage displacement. While Jacqueline acknowledges the pain of the past, she draws strength from the resilience of her Diné ancestors. Morgan Ridgway put it this way. I'm always standing on someone's shoulders, right? Someone is always carrying me. Morgan Ridgway is a Black and Lenape scholar and artist from the stolen Lenape lands of Philadelphia. They are an artist who utilizes poetry, creative nonfiction, dance, mixed media, and archives in order to reimagine modalities of history telling, as well as a PhD candidate with graduate minors in queer and indigenous studies. Before we move through today's episode, I feel a need to state something obvious. There is no one indigenous experience. There are an estimated 370 to 500 million indigenous people in the world, spread across 90 countries, living in all geographic regions, and there are at least 5,000 distinct different indigenous cultures. Beyond that, each person has their own life experience, their own family history, their own essence. And so in speaking about indigenous resilience and the ways in which indigenous people throughout the world are surviving and thriving, it's important to recognize that there is great diversity among native people. Not yeah. all natives are born and raised on reservations. Yeah. More than 70% of indigenous people now live off the reservation in big cities, in suburbs, you know, around the reservation. So you don't have to be born and raised on a reservation to be indigenous, right? Or to be enrolled in your tribe. That was Simon Moya Smith, an enrolled citizen of the Oglala Lakota Nation, a prolific freelance journalist, an adjunct professor, and the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Your Spirit Animal is a Jackass. As we spoke, I realized that I wanted to make something clear to this listening audience, especially because it's something many of the interviewees for this episode made clear to me. When I refer to Indigenous people, I'm speaking beyond whatever racial classification you might find on an Ancestry DNA profile. This is not an Elizabeth Warren situation. Having indigenous ancestral blood is not the same as having an understanding of ancestral heritage and culture. You know, we deal with a lot of people who are what we refer to as convenient Indians. They claim to be indigenous. They claim to be Cherokee or Blackfeet when it serves their purpose, when it serves their purpose when they're applying for a job, when it serves their purpose for applying to school or they're caught wearing a headdress or wearing red face. They'll say, I'm Chippewa. I'm allowed to wear this. Like, no, you're not. You know, headdresses specifically are like our medals of honor. You have to earn the right to wear one. Just because I'm enrolled in my tribe doesn't give me the right to wear one. I have to be given the right to. And um, under certain circumstances, like it, you would never wear one to a suburban cocktail party, right? Oh, hell like, no. I mean, it, no, yeah. no, 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 no. So, yeah, it diminishes what they stand for and the significance of them in our communities. If you think you're Cherokee, you're claiming Cherokee, go back to the family names, right? You can look through birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates, 
and take them back to whichever tribe you think you are a descendant of. And then you can affirm or unfortunately learn that you're not, right? And I think that helps us because there are a lot of wannabes out there. Too many people speak with smug entitlement on things that they know diddly shit about just because they have that family lore. There is that ethnic bankruptcy, right, that people are trying to fill that cultural capital that they're trying to fill with some faux indigeneity. Somebody says that their great-great-grandma was a Cherokee princess. I'm like, well, who was the king? Who was the queen? But that's, again, there were no kings and no queens. There, that wasn't our system. So yeah. obviously that's bullshit. Here is Charlene Teeters again. Just because somebody might be able to trace their lineage back to a tribe, that they may not have, you know, what makes us who we are, you know, that kind of cultural understanding. So what makes Indigenous people who they are? We are a people that is connected by culture and by stories and by blood. This week, you'll hear about stories and cultures that have been suppressed by white supremacy. And in the listening, you'll be enriched by the perspectives of those who have a genuine relationship with their ancestral histories. Much of what's shared will reflect the beauty and resilience of indigenous people, past and present. But I don't want to succumb to the colonizer model of storytelling by pretending that the past doesn't directly impact the present. There are challenges facing indigenous individuals and communities that come as a direct result of the displacement, disease, and violence inflicted by European invaders. Due to savage white supremacy, the life expectancy of indigenous people is as much as 20 years lower than that of their non-indigenous counterparts. More than one in three indigenous women are sexually assaulted during their lifetime. And Indigenous women have higher rates of maternal mortality, teen pregnancy, and sexually transmitted diseases. What's more, Indigenous people, while making up less than 5% of the world's population, account for 15% of the poorest. Many members of today's Indigenous population lack adequate social protection and economic resources. And as of 2019, it was estimated that one Indigenous language dies every two weeks. When Indigenous languages are under threat, the people who speak them are also under threat. What will it take for us to fight it? To realize that we all are one. Make unity and inner peace the only reason. Cause we need better, need so much better. We deserve better. I believe that as inheritors and practitioners of unique systems of culture, kinship, and land stewardship, indigenous people and practices have the power to save people and the planet. For example, if we want to practice ethical food sourcing and sustainable farming, 
All we have to do is look to indigenous ways of food production and consumption, which have invaluable benefits for natural resources and ecosystems, contribute to a sustainable and healthier diet, and help mitigate climate change. Perhaps one of the most urgent indigenous philosophies that ought to be adopted by people of all cultures is the seventh generation principle. I am a seventh generation of someone. If we always think about seven generations in the future, I am one of those generations, seven generations ago. And I think that the the kind of knowledge that we are always part of this growing movement towards some future of some version of our people, I think it allows communities to, to understand themselves as part of an ongoing system of relationships between each other, between the land that we're on. And I think that it defies any attempt to destroy it in spite of the working of whiteness, in spite of the working of settler colonialism, in spite of the working of all these systems that tell us this is the only way you can be if you want to survive. These communities have known and continue to know, and we continue to know that there's always been another way. You know, we have a rule in our communities, in our society, seven generation rule, that you don't make any significant decisions without considering seven generations you'll never meet. Seven generations ahead, right? And so the unfortunate part about that, and it goes back to the idea that white ideology, white Christendom has a different ideology than we do when it comes to things like seven generations ahead, whereas we live in a society, we, this oligarchy, this plutocracy that has self-involvement so deep ingrained in themselves that they care about only what they can see. They can only care about the grandchild that they see, and that's it. When we talk about climate change, everybody drinks water. This is, you know, and we're talking about sovereignty and we're talking about these pipelines that are, are cutting through indigenous territories that are protected by our treaty rights. You know, when we're talking about that, we're also talking about the cleanliness of water, cleanliness of the earth. We're talking about seven generations ahead. So it's just a difference in ideology that's been there since the first white man came here and stumbled our way. They cared more about wealth and self. The difference with us is that we value land and community and water and are are just essentially the world that we can see, can't see, but also those we will never, ever, ever meet. It's a twisted irony that the United States government stole and co-opted the Iroquois Great Law of Peace to form the Foundation for American Democratic Government, yet omitted one of its most essential tenets. That, and I quote, in our every deliberation, we must consider the impact of our decisions on the next seven generations. If you're not familiar with the Iroquois Great Law of Peace, the Iroquois Confederacy was founded in 1142 and is the oldest living participatory democracy on earth. And in its Great Law of Peace, it sets forth various articles including restricting members from holding more than one office at a time, outlining processes to remove Confederacy leaders, designating two branches of legislature with procedures for passing laws, delineating who has the power to declare war, and creating a balance of power between the Iroquois Confederacy and individual tribes. It has all the major components of the U.S. Constitution, which came about more than 650 years later. 
But the U.S. omitted the seventh-generation principle and the role of women in government. And it's these two components that have led many Native people to say that the United States copied the great law of peace, but didn't really understand it. When we talk about the seven generations, that's that's very indigenous, and um, and and I would say it's common amongst all you know Native nations is that what we do today is not just about us. It's about making sure that that is going to we we judge it by by you know how is it going to impact the seventh generation, those who have yet they're not born yet, you know. So uh, who does that? If policymakers in D.C. if they were making policy based on how it's going to impact people in the future, I think they would be making different decisions. But it's so much about what's good for me right now. And that's what's kind of wrong with having so many men in charge is that they are not the life givers. They don't think about those future generations in the same way that I think women who are the life givers you know, understand that what you do impacts those who are yet to be born. I should note that while according to culturally biased internet sources, a generation represents a 25-year period, for many indigenous nations, a generation is seen as a 100-year period. Can you imagine if those governing present-day decisions thought about those 700 years into the future? As for Charlene's point about women, I can't speak to what it is to give life, but I can say that misogyny and all its constructs present huge problems for people of all genders today. For me personally, I can say that the so Lenape people are, are matriarchal, and so women have sort of generally the authorities. Women are in charge. So that's a very different experience than most Westerners who sort of live under patriarchy and not that we don't live under patriarchy, but there are family units are structured differently. And so I grew up with a type of femininity that was fierce and very much at the center of everything that we do, right? It's my aunt's house, even though my uncle lives there. It's my grandmother's house, even though she may have died, right? Like it's always going to be hers. That's the kind of site of power is always in women and femininity. Let's talk about what it might look like to deconstruct the culture of colonization and expand beyond aggressive American autonomy to create space to think not only of ourselves, but of others and the environment. Here is Fern Holland, a Sicilian, Norwegian, and Irish-American on her mother's side, and Australian on her father's side, with Scottish, English, and Irish heritage. Fern works as an environmental scientist and consultant for ecological contaminated land and other environmental assessments, and she was instrumental in the development and passing of Bill 2491, which imposes regulations on the agriculture industry on Kauai. Growing up with a a respect for Native Hawaiian culture, religion, understanding, practices, and protocols, I really have a respect for how interconnected the Hawaiians are with the land and how like prior to the Western overthrow of like land ownership models, when the great Mahele happened in the 1800s, there was really like no ownership of land. There was kuleana, which is responsibility to take care of land. 
but there wasn't this like I own this boundary from here to here. Nobody else can come. This is my land. I do whatever the hell I want. And there's no bigger thought process. Your responsibility for a piece of land was directly reflected to show how you take care of that land. Spokane Reservation is one of the most beautiful physically. It's the most beautiful land that you could ever look at. And, you know, we have about 2,000 tribal members, I think. It's like 2,000 something, you know, it's like maybe somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 tribal members. And we live on a land base of about 240 acres. It's relatively large. It's, you know, obviously not what it used to be. You know, our land base used to go up into Canada and, you know, into Montana. And now it's between the two rivers. I always say we're between the two rivers, the Spokane and the Columbia River. But those rivers are so beautiful. We have big trees and the wildlife is still there and it's still very much a rural community. And then the people are, of course, we have the whole range of political ideology. <laughs> you know, we do have our Republicans, but, you know, we also have some very progressive people. Those are the ones that are really working on the revitalization programs primarily. Everyone I spoke to stressed the importance of land. There's something really powerful about being in a place where you feel like yourself, like being in a place where you feel possible. I've never lived anywhere other than our homelands before coming to graduate school. Of course, I visited other places, but I've, I've never lived anywhere else but our territory. So I, I've never really known the experience of being homesick until relatively recently. And I think my work becomes my refuge. I in a, in a place, again, I'm, I'm at an institution that is very white, that is colonial, all of these other things. It's not a place to hold me as a full person, this institution. And so I have to find a way to do that. And so I, I have a community of, of queer folks of color that is part of that work. But also a lot of my poetry is preoccupied with land and family and possibilities, the sort of the ways that we make bonds with people across time and space. Um, And I think that becomes a place of refuge. I moved to New Mexico and it moves for love. I moved to be with my partner and my partner isn't from my tribal community. He's Pueblo and I live and um, call Pueblo lands my home now. And I'm so grateful for the teachings. Um, In a lot of my presentations, I usually open by giving a land acknowledgement from a very personal place of where we are, you know, because we're working from home, right? And I'm living on his reservation. And it's really from this place of having respect for the medicines and the stories that I've slowly been able to be introduced into and into, and especially now it's these lands that help me, um, especially in this moment of pandemic, where like, I don't have access to my homelands right now. Um, because of restrictions and safety guidelines that we're following and respecting that have been laid out by our community here. And so I'm so grateful for the way that this land nurtures me. Land acknowledgements are essential to understanding the long history that brought each of us to where we are. Mary Lyons of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe has said, and here's her quote, When we talk about land, land is part of who we are. It's a mixture of our blood, our past, our current, and our future. 
We carry our ancestors in us, and they're around us, as you all do. So while that may not make sense to those of us that were indoctrinated with a sense of privileged individualism, the idea that there's no value in the past is destroying any possibility of the future. According to a number of credible sources, including BBC and Forbes, it seems that our time as a species will not be infinite and that the planet can't sustain us forever, especially if we don't take care of it. But that doesn't mean we can't delay the inevitable through committed and corrective action. Spoiler alert, in this context, action doesn't have to be original. A lot of it is just going back. We don't have to be innovative. We just need to go back to what the Native people already knew would work and just respect the land management system that was established hundreds of years prior. On a political level and on a policy level, we're really fighting for stuff like tax credits for organic farmers or for people that grow Native traditional foodways like Kahlo. We're looking at political actual policy stuff like that. But at the same time, like a lot of it's grassroots. I mean, there's a handful of friends that that I work with that on other projects that have a hui that's working on restoring the old fish ponds. Hawaii had incredible fish ponds in old, in old Hawaii, we had incredible fish ponds that, that, uh, you know, produced a huge amount of food for the people. And so there's efforts going to restore those kind of traditional land practices. Going back to what was requires a willingness to admit that cycles of invasion and colonization are destroying us. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. And I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, Whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So, connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. So how do we learn about sustainable ecological practices? And how do we replicate the people-centered, community-centered, seven-generations-focused ideologies that have kept Native nations and Indigenous people thriving despite savage white supremacy? I think first thing that always has to be done is sort of give knowledge keepers their due, right? So sort of for Indigenous folks, our elders know so much. Right. So how do we give platforms to our elders to sort of take the lead and to, to establish what the protocol is to like engage with our communities? Right. There are certain things that are open. There are certain things that are closed. And elders are, are and knowledge keepers are, are people who can talk about those things. Right. I think there is a kind of necessity of listening, of waiting as excited or as eager as someone might be to kind of learn something. 
at a certain point, you have to be directed by other people, right? People in that community, people in that culture. And sometimes that means, no, you can't have this, right? And sort of comfortable with accepting not having everything, right? I think that gets back to sort of something you said before about individualism, right? The narrative of individualism is that you have access to everything around you, right? That everything that you can touch is yours if you work hard enough. And that's ultimately not really the case. And I think that one of the things that is really important to recognize in the steps toward becoming an ally, working toward the the stretch to become accomplice, is the understanding that settler colonialism is an ongoing system that is held up by everyday actions of people who are not Indigenous, right? So people who continue to benefit every day from this system of oppression. And I think when we think about, because of our own lack of understanding of them, cast them as things that are in the past or over, there becomes the existence of them being able to get stronger, bring into our understanding and challenge our, our awareness and recognize that there is pervasive invisibility and erasure of Indigenous narratives, of history, of stories. Like we can look across the country. So I think because we are all as human beings trying to live and thrive on and in this place, we have an obligation to the ancestral stewards of this place to learn more about ways of showing up, right? We're benefiting from that that taking, that stealing of, of land. And so therefore we need to think about ways of, of kind of creating a cycle of regeneration, like how are we giving back? It's in the giving back that we start to see the symbiotic relationship between the earth and its inhabitants. There is no conservation without community because we are a part of that cycle, you know? And so conservation without community actually doesn't necessarily help conservation. People, especially the people that are directly tied to those locations, need to be directly attached and involved and given responsibility for the protection and the conservation of that area to keep it in perpetuity, or else you see resentment, you see disrespect, you see, you know, lack of care and just collapse of whatever you're trying to do because there's really not that attachment by the surrounding community. And so as we've learned in conservation over the last few decades, combining you know, community and conservation is really where you see the best outcome because everybody becomes stewards and everybody is responsible for that conservation and protection of whatever it is. And if we honor communities and the individuals that comprise them, show respect for generations past and care for those yet to come, those we might never even meet, then we can move beyond conservation and actually rebuild. You're seeing a revival. It's almost another, like, you know, after Hawaiian language and hula and dance and chants went underground for about 100 years, it was illegal to speak the Hawaiian language. During the the real oppression of Hawaiians, the hula was banned for about 100 years with the transition to Christianity. And then King Kalikawa brought back in, in a revival, a real revival of Hawaiian culture, started to bring back the hula. And now we're kind of in another phase of revival, I, I feel like, um, in Hawaiian cultural revival. I mean, I mean, 
politically, you're seeing it kind of around the country and the world with uh, attention being turned to Native and Indigenous rights, to, you know, people of color across the board, really, who you're seeing, you know, what you're seeing across the continent this year with the Black Lives Matter movement and with so many conversations, you're finally seeing some of that acknowledgement and that respect given back, like, hey, you guys really kind of knew what you're doing. <laughs> like, Indigenous cultures knew you know, more about their land than, than the colonialist overthrowers did, you know, fancy that. You're seeing a lot of revival of the chants, of the protocols, of the spiritual and religious practices that kind of were lost because Hawaiians were a, a oral language. Um, and so now you're seeing a lot of that stuff be reborn. We're seeing an awakened generation that's not only aware of their past and so much of incredible protocols and culture and mo'olelo or stories or, or the chants of old Hawaii, but also you're seeing them create new. You're seeing, you know, the younger ones that are so educated, writing their own songs, writing their own chants. You know, you see stuff that came out of Mauna Kea movement of the, the younger generation, still listening to our older generations that we have super respect for in Hawaiian culture, but you're really seeing a, a really smart and awakened generation that is, is really proud of their culture, aware of their culture, and ready to practice their protocols and beliefs. And we're going to start to see things change as those generations, you know, become workforce generations, become leadership generations, you know, and, and move forward. So, so the hope is there, um, for me anyway, that, that those kind of things are going to return, yeah. which includes the land management practices. And then the revitalization of our language. It only survived to this day because people who are the culture keepers went underground to keep those songs and those stories and those dances and those ceremonies alive to this day. But we are going through um, a struggle today to try to revitalize our language. So we have these incredible young people there, you know, um, that are probably your age <laughs> who are, you know, doing the efforts to to bring back this beautiful language, because that's really what makes us who we are. I think a kind of testament to Indigenous communities is that in spite of such a wide and violent attempt to eradicate everything about who we are, those stories have survived in some way, right? Even if it's in stories between your family, somehow those things have remained and somehow there are still enough speakers that we can start a revitalization program and the language is going to come back, right? There's something incredibly, like, it's almost unimaginable to me that people have been able to retain such power in who they are in spite of everything. The stewardship of Indigenous languages, spirituality, stories, and complex systems of knowledge throughout generations is a testament to Indigenous resilience. Again, this is not a linear experience. There is pain and trauma that comes with recognizing the interconnectedness of humanity, while some humans insist on racism, hatred, violence, and violation. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. 
As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical. And a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity Or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code DIVERSITY to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code DIVERSITY for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. In last week's episode, Tessa McLean, an Ojibwe community planner and an expert in sustainable energy practices and environmental justice, who is passionate about raising awareness about the plight of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, spoke about the direct connection between toxic masculinity, white supremacy, and the endangering of indigenous lives. She shared about her cousin Jenna's murder and how devastating Jenna's death has been, as well as how devastating it's been to have received such insufficient justice. At the same time, Tessa has found ways to honor Jenna. When my relative was murdered, you know, um, one thing that many cultures or many of our Native nations do is they cut their hair. And so I did that when it you know, when it happened and I did another memorial cut. And so when you cut your hair, that's a sign of honor. You know, it's, we also think like in our hair, we have memories. 
you know, our intentions are in our hair. So I cut my hair to, you know, represent that loss. And so for me, that's what I do. Um, but just, you know, continuing to talk about my relatives or um, remembering them, you know, I talked about my cousin, her name is Jenna. Uh, I talked about her last week and like just how goofy she was. We need to honor Native people, past and present, not in appropriative ways, but in appreciation for and recognition of their ongoing contributions. There are over um, 560 federally recognized tribes within the United States, um, and that doesn't include tribes that are only state recognized or tribes that are seeking federal recognition, you know, so that's over 500 different types of indigenous people in the United States alone. No matter where you are in the United States, you're on Indian country. I love recognizing other indigenous people's land. I think it's really cool to think about who belonged there and what did they do? How did they live? You know, not all of us had teepees. Like my people didn't have teepees. So just self-education is really cool. So how can a person who is not Indigenous be respectful of Native people? My very existence is unsettling to some people. It's not a problem with me. I was born into that relationship. Like, I inherited that. The only person who can change that are white people. Because that's a problem with whiteness. I think the kind of work that I do is to say, this relationship can easily be changed if you just decide to do something else. Why is it that my existence makes you that uncomfortable? Why do you implicitly or explicitly think that I don't belong here? Especially when, as a Lenape person, you've already been on my land. You've made your entire generation on my land, but I'm the one who's made to feel uncomfortable. Why is that? How do we have that conversation? And part of that conversation is discomfort and feeling uncomfortable about your own inheritance. What do we do then? What do we do? What do you do if you're listening to this, if you're acknowledging your complicity in systems of supremacy? Privilege means you have the ability to do something that someone else doesn't, right? And so how do you operationalize that in a better way, right? One that doesn't pretend or absolve you of of your implications in, in oppression, right? Implications in violence, implications in continue the disadvantage status of other people, right? I think that there's it can be overwhelming. It feels bad. History can feel really bad, but that's the first step into doing something about it. What do you do in the moment after when you feel bad? Whatever you do, don't reach out to every indigenous person you know and try to get them to school you on your own privilege or to apologize for your race. Even your good intentions can also be pretty damaging and injurious because you do have that encoded racism, that indoctrinated racism, right? And also that privilege, because there are a lot of people who do truly have good intentions. But because of that ignorance, usually at no fault of their own, they are doing more damage than they are good. A little later in this episode, I'll offer some tangible tips that were offered to me. But first, I want to look at how Indigenous people are supporting other Indigenous people. Our communities have been trying to, have been trying and to a certain degree have been succeeding in protecting us, right? Protecting our our, our own and have been creating systems of care and love that are so integral to, to who we are and that those things need to be funded. 
right? That there has to be a way to maintain the knowledge of our own communities, right? It's not the sort of top down, we're going to give you money if you do X, Y, and Z, but like, we know that you know what you're doing. How do we support you in those endeavors? When people are appropriating our spiritualities and they're doing it for financial gain, we have to stop them as, as much as we can. Well, the Spokane tribe is, is you know, like the many um, 550 tribal nations in the United States are those that have survived manifest destiny. So they are tribal nations in every sense of the word, meaning that we have um, land, we have a land base, we have a government that we vote in and out, (laughs) we have laws, we have, you know, so we're a government in every sense of the term. So we're sovereign nations. So when I say I'm a Spokane tribal member, that means I am a citizen of my Spokane nation. So we're, we are a people that's connected by history, by land, by culture, by blood. We know our ancestors have experienced and had to survive our things that we're dealing with today, right? And I, I think knowing that it's going to be difficult is really important first step. But I think that there's an incredible beauty that you find in knowing how far people have come and and how strong people have had to be to make it here for you to be who you are to be where you are right and I think that there's nothing that can really and maybe this sounds like very hallmarky but there's nothing there's no price on that right it's it's to know intimately that that you're standing on the shoulders of so many people I think is an incredibly beautiful thing There are indigenous community centers, cultural organizations and collectives, elders, creators and artists, and their art stories and culture are important to appreciate. The kind of the beauty of communities of color is that we persist, right? And so we can call attention to the kind of assumed cultures, the assumed kind of like a validity of those places in our very existence. I actually use the terminology of like cultural belongings because one, it places the ownership of what we're looking at in the museum as being connected to the sovereign nations, like of indigenous people. In speaking about museums and about exposure to indigenous art and culture belongings, Jacqueline told me. There's this unique opportunity that's presented in them to have people from various backgrounds, oftentimes with a lot of privilege and power, who are coming into a space maybe not traditionally having been exposed because that's the way that our society is. It it really works to invisibilize indigenous history and art and culture, but really not having been exposed to that and finding ways to kind of break consciousness around different types of Indigenous artists and different understandings, and really from this goal of like elevating this perspective of Indigenous thought um, so that it is equal to or seen as comparable to a lot of this Western Eurocentric idea of what we think of as art and culture. And I also love the way that social commentaries that Indigenous artists are making now are really helping to crack and break a lot of the stereotypes that are held about Indigenous people. Morgan told me about a performance piece they created. I was at the American Philosophical Society, which is, again, one of these sort of big institutions that 
holds history, um, colonial histories, histories from histories of medicine, science, all sorts of things. And uh, I was part of a fellowship, so in residence doing research for this dissertation, and we had a final presentation. We each had half, uh, there were, I think, eight fellows with me that year in my cohort. Mm -hmm. um, we each had half an hour to sort of present what, what is our research about? What have we learned this year? And typically the strategy or the sort of thing to do was to, a 15 to 20 minute talk, and then you have 10 to 15 minutes for questions. And I decided to do a performance art piece instead that combined poetry, visual art, and dance. And so I did a whole poetry series, poem series on rest. Uh, I was really kind of sitting with this idea of, of where do you go when you think you have nowhere else to, nothing else to give, right? Well, what is that moment after exhaustion? What the moment after you realize you're exhausted? And then I sort of made a, a couple maps, like a, a little map, map series that was about Indigenous Philadelphia, the ways that it has been populated for decades, if not centuries, and the ways that that gets unwritten in the archive as an empty space, right? And if you were just to go to an archive, you would think that no one lived here. But if you go to a, a different set of people, you, you see how, how vibrant this community was. And so I sort of opened it up for people to explore that. The poems were printed out as museum exhibit labels yeah. that were next to portraits of, of famous white people who have done something of merit. I can't tell you what they are, yeah. to be honest. I don't think a lot of people could tell you what they are, which tells you something, right? Um, but it was the, the point was to kind of juxtapose them, right? This sort of, this poem doesn't seem like it belongs there. Why does it feel out of place? And what is it telling you that doesn't seem to fit here? And then... I, as people were sort of milling about, ex like exploring the space, I brought in a, and I'm also playing Solange as a seat at the table in this sort of colonial institution. It's blasting through the halls. Like I'm really trying to sort of, again, another, another woman who would not be allowed access to that building in so many different ways because of who she is and where her lineage is. And I bring in this inflatable mattress into the space and do this, this kind of 15 minute solo or 15 minute duet, depending on how you read it, right? A duet with this mattress that is all about exhaustion, all about percussiveness, stomping the ground, hitting the body, sort of something that's intentionally calls attention to itself in a space that I'm always hyper visible because I'm the only one of me in this kind of institution. And so if, if I'm the only one of me and you're going to look at me regardless, I'm going to call your attention on purpose mm -hmm. and ask you to look at me under my own conditions right? I get to determine how you engage with me as a person. And all I'm trying to do is rest on this mattress. All I'm trying to do is pause. All I'm trying to do is give myself some moment of respite, right? So yes, yeah, so it was a, it was called wonderment or sort of like living. And I think I had some of the most powerful, productive conversations at that institution after that performance, because I think the proximity mattered, right? You're you're five, six, you know, maybe eight feet away from me as you see this person struggling to get someplace. Now you have to look. The kind of the ways that that black and indigenous communities force your gaze, particularly the white gaze, I think is really, really important. So I'm inspired by so many of my elders, right? I'm part of a genealogy of of and a legacy of artists who are making work in this sort of view of artists and activists. 
In last week's episode, you heard Charlene share about the piece she created as part of Looking for a Place, Third International Biennial, which disrupted invaders' depictions of Native people as savages and forced the white gaze to reckon with the present and the past. Here's what Charlene told me after that. A number of my pieces are like that. The latest one um, had to do with the immigration crisis at the border. Not this summer, but the summer before when, you know, it really had boiled over, you know, and there was that day where we saw the father and daughter drowned in the river. You remember that? I do, When I saw that, I became so angry. I became so angry. You know, it makes me cry even to this day. I became so angry by that image that I, you know, had to go through a process of trying to figure out as an artist, how will I respond to this? I had an opportunity to create a new installation piece. So I knew, okay, it's going to be about this. The images that we kept seeing is all of these emergency blankets that are silver. And so I created a regalia. I called her Our Lady. So she's kind of roughly off the Lady of Guadalupe. The Lady of Survival. This is what I call her. So I'm dressed in this regalia and I make these appearances. One is at the Mexico border, the massive border wall. I'm at White Sands. I'm at different places, you know, so I call them sightings, you know. (laughs) So my installation is images of me In this installation, I have a wall that's completely covered with the silver emergency blankets. And then these toys are hung from the ceiling like uh, pinatas because they're very fragile. They're easily broken. So they represent the children. And um, they're beautiful and they're fragile. And like people can be easily broken. But, you know, people would come in and they would cry. They would sit in the space and just cry because they could feel it too. This was a part of kind of a national shame and a national uh, sorrow. I called it Way of Sorrows. Charlene sent me a link to a video of her installation, which I'll share in the show notes so you can see the fragile, easily broken children, along with the empowered image of Our Lady of Survival. I asked Charlene about her pain and the pain of those who suffered, some fatally, at the border, and how she saw the interconnected nature of oppression. It's all of our responsibility. Are we really saying that that we don't have enough to share with other people? Is that what we're saying? You know, that we're going to let other people suffer? You know, I'm really disturbed by those who would deliberately cause this kind of pain on another group of people. Likewise, Jacqueline stressed the importance of communities coming together to uplift one another and to embrace accompliship as a way to get people invested in not only the liberation of those who look like them, but in the liberation, emancipation, and appreciation of all marginalized people as a necessary condition of practicing anti-racism. That is part of the interconnectedness and the ability for us to advocate for each other from this very 
meaningful place of of knowing that like like our futures and our liberation are intertwined right and like we have to acknowledge not only is this indigenous land but this country was built on stolen land and stolen labor and we have to acknowledge both the slavery that is embedded into the foundation of this country and how extractive and harmful and damaging that has been for generations of people alongside the many different ways of and maltreatment that was it has been and continues to be experienced by both communities. The movement to be a anti-racist is an active state. To be a better person, a good human, a good relative is an active state. And you also have to have this self-awareness and emotional intelligence to be able to navigate that. And I think so much of that journey in, in both cases, actually, of accomplice and being ally, require a sense of humility. Jacqueline posed a powerful and poignant question. How can we be good relatives to each other? Tessa offered the answer that holds her in her work and her life. I'm Indigenous and I connect with, you know, American Indian communities and I'm not just Ojibwe, you know, I need to give back to all of these communities, not to be focused on self, but rather, you know, the overall, what's the big picture. Hi, listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, We'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. 100 years after Indigenous people had come to be viewed by their oppressors as the quote-unquote vanishing race, the resilient indigenous population in America has survived. By the 21st century, the population of indigenous people in America is estimated at more than 5 million people. Today, there are 574 federally recognized indigenous nations, variously called tribes, nations, bands, pueblos, communities, and native villages in the United States. Additionally, there are state-recognized tribes located throughout the United States and more than 5,000 nations worldwide, keeping alive about 4,000 languages, which means they know and use over half of the 7,000 languages that currently exist on the planet. Indigenous people are in your community. They're there. Reevaluate who you think we are, what you think we are, but always remember that we're your neighbor. We're here. We're doctors, lawyers, professors. We're, we're professional small business owners. We're still here. So, you know, be careful how you use that privilege of I'm a quarter Cherokee or that you think you know more than you, you know, you think you know something. You probably don't because this is America and they have really canceled us out of the conversation and tried to condition people not to not only see us, but know the truth about us. I'm inspired by so many of my elders, right? I'm part of a genealogy of and a legacy. We have survived 520 years of this brutality. I know Indigenous people will survive this. Clearly, we're survivors. I know we will still be here, 
But I think the one thing that's different for people to maybe change their ideological perspectives, to touch back on that, there are things like you and I are doing right now, you know, having these conversations and having people listen. Because, again, not a lot of people know Indigenous people intimately. If you don't know any Indigenous people intimately and you want to be an ally or better yet, an accomplice, there are tangible things you can do. A couple of years ago, I wrote a piece called 100 Ways to Support Not Appropriate from Native People. And it was an opportunity for not just myself, but other Natives to give our insight on, here. here's 100 ways of things not to do. But ultimately, you could sum that up to just being a decent person. I'll include a link to Simon's article in the show notes. And although in a moment I'll share some actionable items, it may help to keep these words from Jacqueline Russell at the forefront of your attempts to be a decent person. I like the idea of like stretching, like stretching into certain values and like growing into certain places and practicing through like intentional like mindset. The ways that I can challenge myself to know more about my culture. And in doing so, it allows me to ground in practices that are able and both connected to other ways of operating and building in a world that is deeply respectful of like the identities, perspectives, and experiences of other people too. I want to be clear that I'm not the authority. There is no one authority. But on the subject of Indigenous perspectives and experiences, I have zero qualifications as an expert. All I know is what's been told to me and what I've discovered as a result of considerable research and an investment in authentic engagement with Indigenous individuals. So I'll offer you a list of suggestions, all of which were gifted to me by people who know better than I do. I'll share them not necessarily in order of importance because they're all important. And we'll put a link to a PDF in the show notes so that you can have a list of our list. Number one, find out whose land you're on and honor it. What does it mean to sit at the Delaware River? What what does it mean to sit at Penn's Landing when you know that it's not Penn's Landing? When you know it's something else, when you know it has been something else? And how how does the water kind of support you as a person? Number two, do not lightly claim you have indigenous heritage. Number three, avoid sayings that diminish or disparage Native culture. Four, support the dismantling of racist mascots. Number five, support Native artists and businesses by buying art, jewelry, clothing, food, and other items made by Native people and communities. And I should mention here, please do not buy, quote-unquote, Native items not made by Indigenous people. Number six, invite an elder or tribal leader to do an opening prayer or invocation at a large event. Number seven, compensate Indigenous people for their time and expertise. Definitely hire Indigenous people. Number eight, understand that there are over 5,000 different tribal affiliations worldwide, 574 of which in the U.S. have been federally recognized. These nations are extremely diverse and have different languages and cultural customs. So do your research and don't lump everyone together. 
Number nine, when desegregating data, make sure to include Native or Indigenous as a category. Indigenous people are a small percentage of the overall population because of the injustice done by invasion and colonization. To exclude Indigenous people is to perpetrate additional erasure. Number 10, don't say costume when referring to Native outfits or traditional garments. The proper term is regalia. Number 11, do not tokenize people. Number 12, ensure that the voices of Native people are amplified. Number 13, check your privilege. Wherever you are in your life, you didn't get there on your own. There are a number of factors, relationships, influences, and advantages, or lack thereof, that have brought you to where you are. Individualism is an illusion. Thinking about equity and thinking about like our social locations and how that relates and challenges us right to navigate what we can sometimes just classify as like this is a personal thing and yet there are other dynamics that play into it but there is this possibility of transformation of restoration and rejuvenation and regeneration that values the resourcefulness um, and wholeness of all people which is kind of foundational but also enters in this lens of Um, really racial justice. And if you don't think you have privilege, know this. Roughly 60 million people in America and 4 billion people worldwide have no access to technology. If you're listening to this, you have some privilege. Number 14, if you live in a nation that celebrates what has been christened Thanksgiving by colonizers and what is known within indigenous communities on the East Coast of America as the National Day of Mourning and on the West Coast as Unthanksgiving, rethink your engagement with the day, with your ancestral history, and with the significance of what you're memorializing. The fact that we survived invasion, genocide, rape, murder, enslavement. And we don't just sit around and piss and moan about it. We're just like, shit, man, we're here. So we have to thank our grandparents and our ancestors. Something that I've I've told people before, don't perpetuate that narrative of pilgrims and Indians. Instead of celebrating the bullshit narrative of Thanksgiving as it's perpetuated in the United States, use it as a day like we do to celebrate something you survived. Celebrate resiliency and, and the fact that you overcame. What did you overcome? Simon's is a beautiful invitation. Charlene Teeters boycotts the day, which is what I choose to do and have done for many years. Other possibilities might be to educate friends and families about the largely untold history beneath colonist narratives, to contribute to indigenous communities, to honor the land you occupy, or to invest in indigenous-owned and operated businesses. And number 15, somewhat along those same lines, this is Indigenous Peoples Month. And while the engagement and investment in Indigenous people and Indigenous success needs to be ongoing, I would encourage you to take seriously the importance of amplifying Indigenous voices and raising awareness about issues impacting Native communities. If you're looking to learn more about Indigenous leaders and issues that impact Indigenous people, Simon has a simple suggestion. I would encourage people to look up hashtag Native Twitter. That's a great place to find Indigenous intellectuals, Indigenous artists, music, history, food, you know, history without the bullshit. 
And although I said I wasn't sharing these in order of importance, number 16 may be the most essential on the list, the most impactful and a catalyst to become invested and engaged. When referring to Indigenous people, use the present tense and never forget that Native people are and will always be here. So we have to look at the resiliency of Indigenous people. And I think what needs to be addressed is our resiliency as Indigenous people, right? We're, we're still here more than, you know, 520 years after the beginning of a genocide and ethnic cleansing, murder, maim, rape, removal, enslavement, indoctrination. We're still here. Nazi people do exist. A big misconception is Native people don't exist, you know, so we're often overlooked, but we're here and we want to thrive again. It's really important to, like, grow our awareness and understanding of the, just one, the presence of Native people today. There are 574 federally recognized Native nations that still exist today that are all autonomous, that have their own, you know, government-to-government, nation-to-nation relationship with the U.S. government. And we can look at things like the election and see that Indigenous people are out here. Like we are showing up, but we are really taking steps to to work for our communities. Native people are still here. That's the biggest issue. And we're not going away anytime soon. They used to call us the vanishing Americans, thinking that at some point we would become Americanized, we'd lose our language. We're no longer here. We are here. We're not just here physically, we're here culturally. And we'll always be here. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, and review. And if you'd like to ask us a question, which we'll try to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, please call 844-888-8148 and leave your question or comment. Or you can visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Send us a message there, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out more about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. Thank you so much to those who graciously lent their voices to this episode. Morgan Lee Ridgway, Simon Moya-Smith, Charlene Teeters, Tessa McLean, Jacqueline Rossell, and Fern Holland. And thank you to our episode sponsors, Vita Supreme and Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lee Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Zach James, co-collaborator and marketing manager, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, who provided additional audio recording. 
Stuart Cranes, Production and Development Assistant, and Sunny Taylor, Content Editor and Creative Collaborator. The Music You Heard is Better by Brittany Monet. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Join us next week, and in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.